back down and shut your trap. It's time for keeping, keeping it sports, sports with them three. Are you ready? Are you ready? Well, I'll need some beer. Are you ready? You have to ask me nicely. Come on now, don't be bashful. Are you ready? place for the best sports talk and news surrounding each league. I can prove it with my usual flawless logic. Hey man, this time I'm gonna do it my way. Uh, what's your name again? And now, here's your host, M3, Mike Rosansky. What you're about to hear are some of the first words that I have uttered since about, oh, 354 yesterday afternoon. Yesterday being Sunday. Coming to you from Cherry Hill, New Jersey, it's time for Keeping It Sports with M3, powered by the Connecticut School of Broadcasting. Good afternoon, everyone. Hope you're all doing well on this Monday, the 21st day of November. Hope you all having a great day. Hope you all had a great weekend, much better than the second half of my weekend went. As you can here on my voice right now, I'm a bit downtrodden, a bit annoyed, bothered, a little less pissed off than I was at this time yesterday. Maybe it was the alcohol that has calmed me down in the last 21 hours, but it's just more of the same people, more of the same frustration, you know, pain that the New York Jets tend to bring me at some point each and every single year. And this year, this year it's been different than past years because this year they're actually record-wise having a good season. Sitting there at 6-4 and four with a shot at making the postseason. But that's not something that's on my mind, not something that's on the mind of many Jet fans right now because – we have this nightmare that continues to hang over us. This dark cloud that we cannot seemingly escape that continues to haunt us year by year as our lives go on. And that dark cloud is, of course, Bill Belichick and the New England Patriots, who defeated the Jets yesterday for the 14th consecutive time. And of all of them, this was probably the most painful because, as I've mentioned, prior to this year, the Jets have not been that good of a team. So with all the losses, you just you know kind of shrug your shoulders and you move on. But with the Jets being a quality team this year and the fact that it's been so long since that win against the Patriots in December of 2015. This one had you aggravated because you're watching all day. You're watching the Jets defense put on this great performance. Missed a couple of tackles here and there, but that's going to happen. But they're holding the Patriots to three points, holding them to under 300 yards of total offense and only about a buck 20 in the second half. And still they come away with a loss on, of all things, a special teams play. As, I mean, as this was going on, 
as it just was 3-3 forever. I'm sitting there in the middle of my second or third beer in the fourth quarter there, and I'm thinking to myself, how is this going to end? I I was not confident at all in them winning this game based on what I'm watching from this Jets offense or lack of offense or, should we say, offensive offense. I'm wondering... How painful is this going to end? Because that's the only way at this point it was going to end. Pain, misery, agony. And of course, it happens in the final 30 seconds of regulation. Punting the ball out of deep in the Jets' own territory, which they had awful field position all day long. Kind of put themselves in that bad spot because they weren't moving the football at all. Had only 103 yards of total offense on the day. And Marcus Jones, on that punt, takes it 84 yards back to the house. A dagger right in every Jet fan's heart, every Jet fan's gut. Hell, every Jet fan's brain, considering most of us actually thought that they were going to go up to Foxborough and win this game, something that they have not done in the regular season since, wait for it, Brett Favre was the quarterback of the Jets. That's right. That's how long it's been since the Jets have beaten the Patriots in Foxborough that Brett Favre was the Jets quarterback. Regular season, I mean. and We are coming up on the... uh, 10-year anniversary, 12-year anniversary of the can't-wait game, but that was playoffs. And the blame for yesterday, to me, solely goes on two people. Because, yeah, you can get on the special teams for not making the stop, but to be in that spot where your defense only gives up three points and you still lose, the blame goes solely on quarterback Zach Wilson and the offensive coordinator, uh, Mike LaFleur, who, Zach Wilson, you all know that I was a big fan of drafting this kid after they were unable to select Trevor Lawrence two years ago when they had the number two overall pick, and it was between Zach Wilson, Justin Fields, and Trey Lance. Well, so far... And even though Trey Lance has not taken the field much, so far it looks when it comes to drafting Wilson over fields, the Jets screwed up on that. They made the wrong decision. And I'm not just saying this based on the fact that Justin Fields has taken off and played awesome over the last month and a half. I've watched every game from Zach Wilson as the New York Jets quarterback so far. It's been, what, 20 games that he's played for them so far? And I have not seen, no, improvement. I've not seen him fix mistakes on the fly. I've not seen him play like a quarterback who is six foot two, six foot three, whatever he's listed at. He's more so playing like a guy who's about 5'11". He's still bouncing passes in front of uh, receivers on short uh, plays. And then when you have long passes uh, or even intermediate passes down the field, 
he's either floating them for defenders or throwing it over the receiver's head. I mean, the, the one the one play that he made yesterday, you could argue Denzel Mims got away with a potential offensive pass interference on that. Other than that, Zach Wilson was putrid, continued what has been nothing but absolute garbage from him against the New England Patriots. And what's even worse than not just his performance against the Patriots or his performance in general, it's his attitude. It's his lack of accountability. And I wanted to stay away from all things Jets after this loss yesterday. I didn't even watch the post-game show yet. I'll maybe watch it tonight on DVR. But I come across on Twitter yesterday as I'm watching the 4 o'clock games. A video from SNY. And I'll read you the excerpt from the video. Connor Hughes, who covers uh, the Jets, asks... Zach, during the post-game press conference, do you feel like you let the defense down at all? And Zach, sitting there, still with his stupid headband on, for some reason chewing gum, has the gall to say no. Are you freaking kidding me, kid? You don't feel like you let the defense down? And, you know, quite frankly... I shouldn't be surprised about this because if you read reports from out this week, he actually thinks that he played well against the Patriots three weeks ago when he threw three interceptions against them at MetLife. But, oh, he threw for 350 yards. So, yeah, bravo, great performance. Kid, the only quarterback in history that has thrown a higher percentage of interceptions against one team was Kurt Warner. He had, I believe, 15 interceptions against uh, the Panthers way back when. You've already thrown seven, and you're only slightly below him as far as percentage rate of interceptions against uh, one team. I mean, you got to be freaking kidding me. This kid... He takes no accountability whatsoever after poor performances. It, it, it's always we's and us's and never me, I, I got to do better. I can't do this. He And he gets, after these losses, so feisty, so testy with the media, acting like, oh, how dare you ask me this question? How dare you um, think that I'm a part of the problem. Things like that can fracture a locker room. Things like that can cause a divisiveness amongst a team, especially when you have a defense that is playing so well, so, you know, and I'm not even going to say over its head because I've said many times on here, you look at this defensive unit as a whole, there's not a bad player anywhere. I mean, yeah, there's not you know a bunch of guys playing at the electric level of Quinn Williams or Sauce Gardner, but there's no scrub on that defense. Even the guys that they rotate in have been doing the job, like a, a, a Clemens or a Huff. 
both once again having uh, uh, big plays yesterday to stop potential uh, uh, drives for the Patriots. But as a unit altogether, this r- roster is pissed off. I mean, you read Rich Samini on ESPN this morning saying, quote, hearing this morning there's a lot of raw feeling amongst Jet defensive players. Clearly, Zach's postgame lack of accountability didn't sit well. Hell, even Garrett Wilson, who's supposedly his top target, who supposedly they've developed a good chemistry so far this year, he is annoyed by this. When after the game saying, I'm done with this, well, saying this is... Uh, this shit is sorry. They have to put more trust in the receiver room. Hopefully this wakes up some people in uh, the facility. And you know who that's a message to? Not just Zach Wilson, but the offensive coordinator, Mike LaFleur, who you watch his game plans for these games. He, there's never adjustments on the fly. There's never you know, evolving the offense as you go along here. Because you know, you look at it yesterday, it's not like yeah, Mac Jones went twenty-three for twenty-seven, but it's not like he threw for four hundred and fifty yards against the Jets. It's not like he was absolutely destroying the Jets defense on what was an awful day weather wise. You know, the, the, something Zach clearly wasn't hesitant in bringing up after the game saying, oh, it was so windy out there. Well, it didn't affect Mac Jones, who he just took what was presented to him. Little check downs to the running back, slants uh, across the field. Wasn't you know doing anything spectacular, but also wasn't doing anything to put his offense or defense in adverse conditions. What Zach was doing seemingly all day long. I mean, you can't have your quarterback going out there and having less completions than the total number of drives that your offense had on the day. And the the one that keeps popping in my head is he had Elijah Moore wide open along the Patriots side of the field. And he bounces the football about five, six yards right in front of him. And, you know, I'll get back to LaFleur here. You know, why is there no adjustments like that? I mean, you're looking at the Patriots. They adjust to, to what is presented to them. And their offense is run by a former defensive coordinator and a former special teams coach in the likes of Matt Patricia and Joe Judge. Yet, you're supposed to be some offensive whiz kid, and we never see those kind of adjustments from you. And when do you expect it to change? Because he's been enabled as well. Because he's the head coach's BFF. He's the head coach's best buddy. You know, him and his brother, Matt, you see how awful offense he's running it in Green Bay. They're like brothers to Robert Sala. And this, this week... This week is an important week for Robert Sala, not just because you want to have a bounce back at home against the Chicago Bears, who are 
probably feeling like they let one get away against the Falcons yesterday. But you have a crisis on your hands here. You have a situation where this locker room is not going to splinter. This locker room is united against one person. This, it's a 52 versus one situation here. And that one is a quarterback that you drafted at number two overall that you keep te- teasing everyone saying that, oh, you don't know how unbelievable we think this kid is going to be. Or there's no chance that we're going to bench him for the backup. And who, who knows? Maybe Mike White or Joe Flacco wouldn't have done any better yesterday, but they at least would have been accountable. And that's my biggest issue with Zach Wilson right now is not just his play on the field, but his immaturity off of it. Maybe this is why there were scouts leading into the draft years back that were comparing him to Johnny Manziel, that were saying that, oh, this is Johnny Manziel without any, you know, of the partying issues, without any of the, you know, you know, anger management issues that Johnny Manziel seemed to have uh, in the NFL. This kid has got to grow the hell up real fast. This is why about, you remember about three weeks ago after the loss to the Patriots, I said he had the rest of the season to prove that he was the guy. Well, you could argue he doesn't deserve the rest of this season. In fact, you let him go the rest of this season trying to prove he, he's the guy, he could cost the Jets a chance at making the playoffs, something that they haven't done in almost 12 years now. And this group deserves better than that. When you see this defense playing its ass off, when you see the hard work that Garrett Wilson puts in, when you see the fact that you have a makeshift offensive line of guys that are coming in and out, the fact that Dwayne Brown at 37 years old pushed off shoulder surgery because he thought clearly there's something here with this group. When you're seeing the, the, the running backs bat, at least trying to battle their ass off through an offensive line of half guys that no one's even heard of before. And then you see this kid's poor play combined with his immaturity, a lot of which he's been enabled since college to act like. You could argue you know, this group deserves so much better than that. And you're going to throw away a chance at the postseason unless either he gets his act straight and gets things together and is at the very minimum a competent quarterback or you bench his rear end and go to either Mike White or Joe Flacco. Either way, I'm starting to lean toward the side that The Jets don't have their guy here. And this is coming from someone, as I said, who wanted them to select him when they couldn't get Trevor Lawrence. Because, you know, right now, I I think it's also fair to say that even though we chased him out of town, Sam Darnold would have done better with this group. He 
at least would have stood up there yesterday and said, this is on me, rather than Zach Wilson, his sourpuss, standing up there chewing gum with that stupid headband on. Makes me absolutely sick to my stomach. All right, I'm going to take a break here, try to calm myself down. I don't know if that's going to be possible because I'm just so aggravated at that loss and the way that this kid acts. But still got a lot I want to get to for the next, oh, about 45 minutes or so here. Give you some thoughts on the AFC as a whole, which if you look at it right now, who do you trust? Who's that team that you think could come out and represent the conference in the Super Bowl? Give you... Some uh, thoughts on college football with a big injury that took place over the weekend. Uh, Mixing a little NBA. Some thoughts on Durant and the Nets. As well as got to get to the Giants as well, who had a a big loss uh, yesterday. A loss that could prove quite costly in a lot of ways. So plenty to get to over the next about 40, 45 minutes or so here. So sit back. Relax. Hell, put your feet up on the table if there's one in front of you. And continue keeping it sports with M3. I'll be back. It was so hurtful painful and bad about yesterday's loss for the Jets in New England. As I said, 14th consecutive loss to the Patriots. But what hurt even more than that is now when you look at the standings, technically the Jets do not control their own destiny. Now right now we sit here and yes, they're six and four, but they're on the outside looking in on the playoff picture based on the head-to-head matchup between them and the Bengals from earlier this year. And you you look at the AFC as as a whole. I mean, sitting right behind the Jets is the Chargers, a game back, who are coming off of a painful loss in their own right uh, last night to Mahomes and the Chiefs. And quite frankly, is there anyone in America that thought after the Chargers drove down and scored with about a minute and a half to go that thought that they were still going to actually win this game? Come on. You got Patrick Mahomes on the other side. He's made a history of making the AFC West's life a living hell. He's never lost uh, to uh, this uh, division in the months of November and December, or, or at least hasn't lost to them in four years. He's won eight straight against this division. He's making uh, this division that we thought was going to be quite possibly the best division in all of football coming into this year his personal little playground, his personal little funhouse, the fact that he just, no lead is safe against him. He he almost looks at the AFC West and laughs and tells him thanks for trying both him and Kelsey, who 
Now, you, you can make the argument right now that we're watching a guy cement his Hall of Fame legacy in what Travis Kelsey is doing now, passing records that we never thought were going to be broken by Rob Gronkowski, almost redefining the tight end position. But what you're also looking at with the Chiefs is now that their ability to evolve. I mean, they had a ground game yesterday, and that got them you know, off the mat. When it looked like early on there were chances for the Chargers to take off. You know, they were putting a lot of pressure on Patrick Mahomes. But the ground game uh, with uh, Pacheco, especially, even after uh, Clyde Edwards-Hilaire went out with injury, kind of kept this game in check, kind of kept this game at, at an ease. And you're never... You know, you're never at nerves. You're never, you know, panicking when you have Mahomes as your quarterback. But when you're seeing how much he's getting hit, how much pressure he's getting put on him by that Chargers defense, you're looking at it and you're wondering, oh, could we be one play away from this game getting away from us? But they had a good ground game last night. We're able to run the football pretty well. And, uh, you know, every time he needed to make a play on third down, his safety net, Kelsey, was uh, there for him. And now now they sit there where many people would think they're going to be at the top of the AFC at 8-2. and two. But you look around this division, it's truly a five-team race or around this conference excuse me, you look around this conference, it's a five-team race for the number one seed going down the stretch here. Between them and four teams at seven and three right now with the Dolphins, Titans, Ravens, and Bills. And we don't think about the Titans in that way because there's nothing flashy about the Titans. There's nothing overly exciting about them. It's you know, Derrick Henry, a cloud of dust, and hope that Ryan Tannehill doesn't make uh, a whole lot of mistakes. Sure wasn't doing that uh, last uh, Thursday in Green Bay where, you know, I think you look at that game and it was more of a, the Packers just aren't good than the Titans uh, did anything truly explosive. But hey, they did the most important thing in that game and won the game. And they're sitting there at 7-3 and three and probably in a position that, you know, Vrabel likes where it's like, all right, don't give us any attention. Don't talk about us. Don't be the talk of the league. We'll just sneak right under the radar, win this division, and make somebody's life a living hell in the postseason. But you look at uh, the other teams that could get that one spot, that could upseed the Chiefs for that one spot. You got the Dolphins, who have developed as an electric down-the-field offense as there is in the sport. I mean, very few, if any, can match the the downfield speed that they have at the wide receiver position with uh, both Waddle and Tyreek Hill. Tua's been playing at an MVP uh, level, and now, you know, coming off the bye is when we'll really see 
what this team is made of because they've sat there for the last week and a half, had bouquets and roses thrown their way, been, you know, amongst the talk of football. Now it's up to them to go out there and do what they really have not done much since the Dan Marino era, show that they can handle uh, prosperity, show that they can handle success, show that they can handle being one of the top teams in the sport, and they'll get that opportunity started this coming uh, Sunday afternoon. But you know, the with the Ravens and the Bills, and I, listen, I know the 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 weather conditions were awful in Buffalo, but how cool would that have been if they could have played that game in the middle of that snowstorm there? And yes, you want it. It's not just the big concern is uh, this the health and safety of the coaches and the players, but also the health and safety of the fans. And we know that Bills fans would have at least tried to drive through that blizzard to get to the stadium. But it would have been an awesome sight to see uh, them playing football in, in the middle of those conditions. But they went to Detroit, handled business against uh, the Browns. And it, you look at this, it was important for Allen to have a relatively clean game. It wasn't a dominant game. He, he more so relied on the uh, Bills' uh, ground attack, and they were able to have a running game that did not involve him for once uh, yesterday. But they took advantage of a lot of the mistakes of the Cleveland Browns. Mistakes, the reason why they've been a disappointing 3-7 and seven and in all likelihood will be not even in conversation as far as a playoff spot once Deshaun Watson comes back in a couple of weeks. But it was important getting the ground game going because you don't want to just be a one-dimensional team. You don't want to just be a a team where they say, oh, we can just rush four guys at you, three or four guys at you, and we'll uh, play eight-man in the uh, secondary, knowing that you don't uh, run the football very well. But you know, getting Singletary, getting Cook going yesterday – could be a good sign of things to come for the Bills and see if they can carry that over now to Thanksgiving Day where, ironically, they'll be back in Detroit to play uh, the Lions. But what people don't realize what's quietly going on here is the Baltimore Ravens have really gotten going here. The Baltimore Ravens, after a 3-3 and start, have put themselves in prime position to be that team, have put themselves in a position where everyone could have to go through Baltimore to get to a Super Bowl. Because you look at their remaining schedule, and yes, Week 17 is a challenge in Cincinnati. But their next five games is as easy 
on paper at least, as anyone in the sport. You've got the Broncos coming in this uh, in two weeks. You've got the Jaguars this coming uh, Sunday. You've got two matchups against the Steelers, who we've seen you know, offensively can't seemingly put anything consistently together. They'll play Deshaun Watson and the Browns, who who knows what state of mind they're going to be in at that point. And then they've also got the Falcons on Christmas Eve. The Falcons, who were able to somewhat calm down Justin Fields yesterday and keep themselves within shouting distance of a playoff position. But when you look at this, um, most of their difficult games or perceived difficult games are going to be at home. They're going... Uh, they're going to, yeah, they've got to play four of their last seven games on the road, but at least three of them are against teams that they should beat. So, now this is going to be interesting going down the stretch here. All of these teams have warts. All of these teams have things that you look at and you say, I need to see more to truly believe it. I mean, the Chiefs' biggest wart right now is, they seemingly are losing a wide receiver every week to, due to injury. And they're relying on a lot of guys that you didn't know who they were um, going into the game. Even you know, Mahomes was talking about last night that they had to get a lot of young guys to step up around Kelsey with how thin they were at the wide receiver position with some of the injuries they were dealing with to uh, Tony during the game, and as well as uh, uh, Marquez Valdez Scantling dealing with uh, problems throughout the wide receiver room. The Bills, no, the was yesterday a mirage, or do they consistently have a good running attack here? The Titans, are they for real? Can they match up with any of these big boys? As well as, yes, that same question with the Dolphins because it's it's very easy to be the hunter, but when you're the hunted, sometimes teams struggle with that. Teams will struggle with that, you know, all right, now we're not the cute, fun story anymore. Now we're one of the big dogs that everybody's coming in, playing their A game against. And with the Baltimore Ravens, can we consistently see the way their defense has played the last several weeks when it matters the most? Can we see it against Mahomes? Can we see it against Allen? And is Lamar Jackson going to have those past postseason demons that he's had sneak on up on him once again? So it's going to be fascinating to watch this last month and a half, uh, this battle between these five teams as far as who gets that one seed in the AFC. Because remember, in each conference, it's only the one seed that gets the uh, – first round by it. I've said it before. I'll say it again. I, I truly believe that if the Buffalo Bills get home field advantage throughout the uh, AFC postseason, they're going to the Super Bowl. They're the only team that 
I feel confident in saying that about right now that they can head and shoulders rely on home field advantage because we've seen teams go into Baltimore. We've seen teams go into Kansas City and as well as Tennessee and ruin or wreck their dreams of a long postseason. You put any of these teams in Buffalo, I think they're in for three hours of pain and hellacious potential misery going up against the Bills in Orchard Park in that weather and with that fan base. Don't want them getting the one seed. All right, going to take another break here. I'm going to come back on the other side. Now turn my attention to some of the other things that have gone on in the sports world uh, in the last week. Little college football, NBA, hell, maybe maybe even some uh, Major League Baseball as well. Continue keeping it sports with M3. I'll be back. Coming down to the wire in college football's regular season, there's only two truly important weeks left when it comes to determining who's going to be in the college football playoff. This week, seemingly you know, a rivalry week across the board in college football. A lot of you know, animosity, a lot of emotion going to be flying in this week because even even underdogs even teams that we perceive that oh they have no shot against a big dog are going to be bringing their a game because a it's a rivalry and b they may have a a chance at making a bowl game on the line i i don't expect georgia tech to pull off what would be the biggest upset of the college football season in upending number one Georgia, especially uh, down there in Athens. But they're at least going to bring their A game for a half, considering they win, they get into a bowl game. But right now, with about two weeks left to play here, we still have a lot up in the air when it comes to the college football playoff. Because after last week's rankings, as we sit here, Georgia, Ohio State, Michigan, and TCU with Tennessee and LSU on the outside looking in. Well, the four teams that would currently make up the college football playoff held up their end of the bargain, although it was you know, somewhat panic time there. It was somewhat uneasy there for a while for all of them. I mean, Georgia needed uh, uh, McIntosh to you know, flat out run all over uh, Kentucky to hold the, them off. And Ohio State and, and Michigan were at least pushed to the very end by uh, Maryland and Illinois. Hell, TCU, 
TCU, the, the way they won this game is against uh, Baylor is almost remarkable. And you, you wonder you know, if other teams are going to take the tape of this and put it as part of their practice. Because the fact that they, no timeouts left, get uh, the ball advanced to within even decent field goal position. And you're seeing the offensive unit and the special teams unit passing each other like ships in the night onto the field. Them not just able to get set as the clock is winding down, but hit a walk-off field goal like that on the road with a, a rolling clock in that spot was remarkable. And it, in all fairness, I mean, Baylor, quite frankly, deserved to win that game. They look like the more aggressive team. They look like the team that truly had something to play for most of the day. But TCU, to pull that one out of their rear ends, if they make the playoff, that's going to be one that that school is talking about for years to come. Now, the thing that will help all four of these teams, even with Ohio State and Michigan playing on Saturday, and to me, the only way both of them make it is if the loser loses by, say, one score, say a walk-off field goal at the end. And the winner is the Big Ten champion. Now, the, otherwise, if you have an ass-kicking either way, I don't think you can, especially in the case of Michigan. If Michigan goes into Ohio State and gets their doors blown off on Saturday afternoon, They've got no argument that they're out of the uh, the mix for the playoff unless someone below them slips up, unless somebody on one of these teams. Now, you got one slip up with Tennessee falling to South Carolina on Saturday night, and I felt so bad for Hayden Hooker when I'm at an event at the Prudential Center on Saturday night, and I'm reading on Twitter that the kid tore his ACL and is now out for the season. I'm like, oh, for one, that gives Tennessee a second loss. So that's going to eliminate them from the conversation. But, I mean, the kid's played so well the last two years. He's gotten this program back on the map. He's been through so much. That's why he's been allowed the exemption to still be playing college football at 24 years old. Just felt bad for him that not just his season, but his college career had to end in that fashion. But Tennessee got, you know, there's no other way around it. They got destroyed. They got lit up by Spencer Ratliff uh, and the crew on uh, Saturday night. The teams that after them still have a remote shot at getting in this. Even the slightest chance whatsoever are LSU and USC. And with them, both of them are going to have to not just win this coming week, but they got to win their conference championships and hope that winning 
those is enough for the committee. Because I think as long as Georgia doesn't slip up against Georgia Tech, they're in. They could lose the SEC title game and still be in. We've seen them do it just last year to Alabama. The winner of Michigan-Ohio State is going to be in even if they lose the Big Ten title game. Then it becomes, who do you take with those other two teams? TCU has to be undefeated. They're not going to put them in as a one-loss team. But the team to watch here is truly LSU. Because if they win the SEC title game, you got to put them in. Even with two losses, they're not going to exclude the SEC champion from playing in this playoff. So you're looking at a potential wild scenario where you could have, say, two teams from the SEC and two teams from the Big Ten if TCU slips up, or you could it you could have two teams from the Big Ten, the SEC champion. Georgia and uh, TCU, and there's still a lot that could go down. I don't think a lot is going to be turned on its head this week unless Ohio State or Michigan blow the other one out, but you, you can never quite truly predict what this committee is thinking. They might have a entirely different mindset about all of this than we all do, so We're just going to have to wait and see these final two weeks. Now, what came to my attention in the last couple of days is we've seen the the piss-poor season that the Los Angeles Lakers are having so far to start this year. 5-10, they are 14th in the Western Conference. Hell, have had to win three in a row just to be at 5-10, and ten. and the, a lot of this has not been pretty. Haven't won a game on the road. The only team in uh, the Western Conference that's still uh, winless on the road. Hell, even, even the Golden State Warriors have finally won a game on the road, and all it took from them was an insane amount of three-pointers from Steph Clay and Poole to finally get over the hurdle, get over the hump on that front. But the Lakers sit here at five and ten. And if you're a fan of a team who gets off to a bad start in the season, because fans are so fickle and so ready to give up on a season at a at a snap of a finger if things aren't going well, you're already thinking, all right, let's tank. For this kid, Victor Wayanaba, I think that's how we pronounce it, Victor Wembenamia. However, we're pronouncing this kid uh, from France, the the big kid that's any listed anywhere between seven two and seven four, and looks like he barely weighs two hundred pounds. That people are saying could be the best prospect coming into the NBA since LeBron James. Problem is for them, even if they truly bottom out and win only 25 games this year, 
A, there's now a there's the lottery. So you you know the the team with the worst record has just as much chance at getting the first pick as the teams with the second, third, and fourth worst record. They don't just uh, weigh it over the top heavily for the team with the worst record. And B, they don't even have their own first round pick. That went to the Pelicans in the Anthony Davis draft. I think can or trade, excuse me. Can you imagine if we're sitting here a year from now and we're talking about the Pelicans having both Zion and this kid Victor Wembenembia? Uh, as I said, I hope I'm pronouncing this correctly. As you know, pillars to go forward in this organization, along with Brandon Ingram and some of the other young players that they have on this team. I mean, no, I'm sure there's no Laker fan out there that is crying because it got them a championship, and you take the championship and run with it any day of the week. But they, as they say, big time trades, they come at a cost. When you want the gold at the end of the rainbow, there's going to have to be something along the way, whether it's at that present moment or in the future, that is painful for you. And this could be that pain for uh, Laker fans. Now, before I take another break, of course, I've got to touch on the Kevin Durant situation, which seemingly is a day-to-day proposition here. And we, we sit here right now, the Brooklyn Nets are eight and nine. They're in the ninth spot in the East and would currently play the Knicks in a play-in game um, in the whole play-in scenario at the end of the year, which wouldn't that be a fascinating scenario? A play-in game at the Barclays Center when about 75% of the crowd would be rooting for the New York Knicks. But Kevin Durant uh, did an interview recently with Bleacher Report in which he kind of comes off as one of, if not the biggest hypocrites in the, the entire world. He was asked if it was difficult to request a trade. And his response, quote, it wasn't difficult at all to request a trade because it was all about ball. I went to them and was like, yo, I don't like how we are preparing I don't like shoot-arounds. I like practice. I need more. I want to work more bleep. Hold me accountable. Get on my ass and film if that's going to help you get on everybody else's head. I want to do more closeouts. I want to work more shield drills at practice. This was the type of bleep I was coming at them with. I wasn't like, y'all, you all need to make sure everyone around me can make my life easier. Uh, Hell no. I want to make everybody else's life easier. Ask Steve Nash. You can call him right now. I would say, I I need more closeout drills. I need to practice more. That's what I was on. Are you kidding me? He's saying to us that he wants more practice. He wants the team to be held more accountable. He wants them to work 
harder on things. But let's go back about, oh, close to three years ago now. A little less. It was about a week before the season got shut down due to the COVID-19 pandemic. And the Nets fired Kenny Atkinson. Now, they've said since then it was a mutual parting of ways, but let's face it, that, that's always a friendly way to say somebody got fired. And why did that happen? Because, oh, he was coaching them too hard, as it was told to them by Kevin Durant, who, as you all know, did not play for the Nets in the 2019-2020 season. He was still recovering from his Achilles injury in the finals the previous year. He did that because his buddy Kyrie Irving, who he continues to enable, seemingly a theme of this week's podcast, went to him and was whining, complaining, bitching, and moaning about how hard practice was with Kenny Atkinson. So they ran him out of town. And then the following year, when before the season started, the Nets hired Steve Nash as their head coach, who had no coaching experience whatsoever. And if you remember correctly, Kyrie Irving went on Katie's podcast talking about how, oh, we don't want to be coached. Some days it will be Nass running things. Some days it will be you running things. Some days it will be me running things. It will be a collaborative effort. And now you're talking about here in a Bleacher Report article how you want to be coached hard. You want to be held accountable because that will hold everybody else accountable. I mean, just how bad, just how hypocritical does that make you sound? You had a coach that was holding people accountable. That coached people hard. That turned the Nets from a laughingstock into a fun, likable team that got them to the postseason back in 2019. And just because he was coaching your boy Kyrie way too hard, you chased him out of town. So now because, oh, things aren't going well with this roster, because Kyrie every single week is seemingly picking up a new cause that he wants to represent good or bad and coming up with reasons not to play. James Harden forcing his way out. You're looking for excuses. You're looking for reasons why you wanted to be traded and wanting to put the onus all on the organization when it was you that put this whole thing together. And you could have had a head coach that did all those things that you're requiring, that you're asking for here. But like I said, you chased him out of town just because of Kyrie and him being a little baby. You're seeing a theme here, people. You're seeing something here that... No, it's not like I've been just pulling things out of the sky. Not like I'm pulling things straight out of my ass for the last three years when I've been talking about this. I'm a Brooklyn Nets fan. I've watched all of this play out since this group came together in the, the summer of 2019. It's been one thing after another with Kyrie Irving 
And while he's not enough of a star player to get someone fired, Kevin Durant certainly is. So he's going to listen, and for some reason he continues to listen, to what Kyrie is saying. And that's since the moment that they got rid of Kenny Atkinson, that has led to the slow, painful downfall of this team. Yes, they made the playoffs as a what three seed a couple of years ago and should have beaten the Milwaukee Bucks in that second round series. But it took a heroic effort for um, Kevin Durant and James Harden on one leg just to force an overtime in Game 7. But all of Kyrie's nonsense has led to the crap here. It's led to Kevin's hypocrisy here. It's led to this team slowly breaking apart. It's led to Steve Nash not even wanting to be this team's head coach anymore because every day he's getting asked about Kyrie more so than anything on the basketball court. It's led to James Harden forcing his way out because of how Kyrie was being enabled to play in only road games since he wasn't vaccinated. And it's led to them having a six foot nine, six foot ten point guard that is afraid of the basketball. I mean, this is all going to come falling apart. You just watch. At some point, they're going to have to trade all of these guys away and rebuild once again. And quite frankly, the only person I feel bad for in all of this is Sean Marks and Jacques Vaughn. Sean Marks because he had this organization going the right way. But as we all know, you need stars. You need superstar caliber players if you're going to win a championship in this league. And he had to sell his soul to the devil in order to do that. And I feel bad for Jacques Vaughn because he finally gets an opportunity as a head coach once again. Now, he wasn't the Nets' first, second, third, or even fourth um, choice to be the next head coach of this team. They were if not for all of the Kyrie nonsense, they would have hired Ime Odoga from uh, the Boston Celtics. But with all the nonsense going on, that would have been an even worse PR nightmare with all the things that are surrounding that guy right now, even as good a head coach as he is. And now at some point this is all going to collapse and Jacques Vaughn is going to be coaching a rebuild, making his lifetime record as a coach look even worse, bring a a bad a light, a, a possible smear on his name uh, as a coach going forward. So thanks, Kyrie. You created this entire mess. And remember, Kevin, it didn't have to be like this. You could have Put Ky- either put Kyrie in his place from the very beginning and said enough of this shit, or you could have chosen somebody else to be your tag team partner when you had the chance to leave what was as great a situation in the NBA, but you didn't want to be in Steph Curry's shadow anymore.
This mess all falls on those two guys. Kevin could have stopped this, but Kyrie has just made this a constantly worse mess. Going to take one last break. Come back, close things out. Continue keeping it sports with M3. I'll be back. Everything going on with the NFL season, college football, even the NBA. What kind of went under the radar last week was the announcement for all of the awards from the regular season in Major League Baseball announced Monday through Thursday last week. I, I forget, there's a, there's a title that... The MLB Network calls this, and they went a little bit over the top in their TV shows announcing this, having these two-hour presentations for the MVP, Rookie of the Year, Manager of the Year, and Cy Young Awards uh, last week. But now, want to give a shout out to. Of course, some people in this area that won awards. You know, the the Rookie of the Year, you saw Julio Rodriguez win it in uh, the American League, and he's going to be a stud from for years to come. Cy Young was Justin Verlander. The Manager of the Year was Terry Francona. And it should come as no surprise that Judge was the MVP, but was not voted unanimously as the MVP. And listen, everybody has their own right to an opinion. But the fact that it was the two Angels reporters that voted for Shohei Otani, stopping Judge from being a unanimous MVP. And listen, you talk... Otani is a very unique individual. We've never seen a player like that in the history of this sport. But there shouldn't be this bow down, bowing down, ass-kissing uh, thing that's going on when it comes to Shohei Otani. And it's unique in the fact that he can both pitch and hit. But I could almost argue that he comes at a cost to the Angels. That he, what he's doing hurts the Angels as much as it helps them. It helps them, clearly, because A, is a great talent, and B, it brings not just eyeballs to the TV set, but brings people to the ballpark to watch him play. But let's not forget, he's, yes, he pitches, but he pitches once a week. Over 75% of his starts in his big league career have been on at least six days of rest. He's not pitching on once every five-day rotation like everybody else. And it's not like he's playing the outfield in between then. He's DHing. And while he's great at both of those, it's a hinder at times to the Angels because then you don't have the DH spot open 
for Trout because even when he pitches, they have that new rule that when he leaves the game as a starting pitcher, he can stay in as the designated hitter. And when he pitches um, once every seven days uh, as so, it affects the routine of the rest of these starters. It doesn't allow them to get in a groove. It doesn't allow them to get on a roll. So these angel writers that voted for him as the MVP, they did it just to be that guy. Because quite frankly, as talented as Otani is, the Angels would suck with or without him. Let me see him in a pressurized spot. Hell, let me see him do this as a regular starting pitcher. Once every five days, like everybody else. Because you're not going to win anything continuing to go through this nonsense. And any organization worth their salt would not allow him to affect the rest of their rotation with his uh, uh, nonsense. And you could argue he cares more about his brand than he does actually winning. Now, on the National League side of things, uh, Michael Harris was the rookie of the year. Uh, Paul Goldschmidt was the MVP. Sandy Alcantara was unanimously the National League Cy Young Award winner. And the National League Manager of the Year was Buck Showalter, another guy who continues to get his ass kissed, even though, as I'll continue to bring up, one playoff series win in 21 years. Yeah, yet he's just the best. He's such a great manager. Keep fooling yourselves with that media. The Mets aren't winning a World Series until he is no longer their manager. Now, yesterday was, even with all the heartbreak that was going on in this area with the Jets, yesterday was also a painful day at MetLife Stadium for the New York Giants because they fell to the Detroit Lions a team that I don't think the Lions are going to make the playoffs by any means. I don't think they're going to all of a sudden roll off seven straight here or what would be now, what? That would be 10 straight after being one and six and um, make the postseason. But they're going to be a team that's a dangerous out that's going to make teams' life a living hell going down the stretch with the fact that they can run the football, have a defense led by Aiden Hutchinson that uh, can calm other teams down, especially uh, their ground attack. I mean, you saw yesterday, Saquon Barkley was a non-factor. And when Barkley is a non-factor, the margin of error for the Giants is so razor thin that you can't have Daniel Jones making the mistakes that he's making. I mean, you almost can't fault him with the first one because who's expecting Aiden Hutchinson to back up into coverage and, and be there waiting for an interception. But the second one, at a time where the Giants are looking to make a rally and he's got to throw it down the field when you're in a Lions territory was you know a killer. The, that was one that... Uh, when uh, Kirby Joseph picked him off 
there was uh, no uh, bounce back from. And you, you look at this this Giants team now. They lose what was arguably their most exciting young receiver in Robinson yesterday. Uh, him uh, coming down with a leg injury that will force him to miss the rest of this season. They were already getting you know, minimal production from their wide receiver group as it was with Tony really never playing for them this year and Kenny Galladay just you know, stealing money from the organization at this point. Now, yesterday was a painful loss for this Giants team, When, especially when you look at the fact that now they got to play on Thanksgiving. They're going up against the Cowboys, who just demolished the Vikings yesterday and finally realized that their offense should be centered around their best running back, Tony Pollard. And their defense just gave Kirk Cousins and the Vikings no chance whatsoever yesterday. Now, I mean, you knew that this was going to be a bad one, especially when you saw that the game was starting at 425. It was at 1 o'clock, maybe the Vikings would have had a chance, but Kirk Cousins is allergic to anything outside of Sundays at 1 o'clock. And, you know, the the Vikings just never seemingly were competitive in this game outside of uh, their second drive of the game when they settled for a field goal. And all the way around, the Cowboys look like the team that we expect them to be. Rely on their ground game and have a ferocious pass rush that will make another quarterback's life a living hell. But what that loss for the Giants and win uh, for the Cowboys did is possibly hurt them in the Odell Beckham sweepstakes. Because as we know, Odell is going to make a decision at some point in the near future. He's going to decide on his uh, next team very, very shortly here. And as it looks right now, it's going to come down to the Giants, and the Cowboys as he's got visits planned to both teams in the coming days after Thanksgiving. Well, if you're him right now, who's looking like the more appetizing team? Because the Giants, more so than the Cowboys, need him. But the Cowboys could be a team that goes on a run here and finds themselves in a Super Bowl especially if they stick with this uh, uh, predominant ground attack and fill in where need be with uh, Dak Prescott. And, you know, Ezekiel Elliott is able to handle being the second back on this team. You know, Tony, Tony Romo put it best yesterday. It doesn't matter which one of them starts. It's about who gets more touches. It's about who's more part of the offense. And the this offense has seemed to have a flow to it, has seemed to have a second gear to it when you centered around uh, Tony Pollard being the main back on this team rather than Ezekiel Elliott. And the, 
you know, the rest of the team has been able to feed off that. And imagine if you give them Odell Beckham Jr. as that wide out to put on the opposite side of C.D. Lamb, they can compete with just about anybody in the NFC, especially if they keep that defense healthy. So the Giants yesterday, you know, could be really kicking themselves now. Could be really looking at, oh, what could have been? And you now they've got to watch because, you know, all along with this fun start that they've been off to, heading into these two games between the Texans and the Lions, we figured that the playoffs were just a formality. Well, you realize that. You've got the San Francisco 49ers breathing right down their necks. And the Commanders have now won five of their last six games. And the Giants play the Commanders twice in their final six games. You look at the Giants' remaining schedule. They got the Commanders coming up uh, 10 days after uh, Thursday. Then they got the Eagles, both of those games at home. And then three of their final four games are on the road. Commanders at Vikings, Colts at home, and then against the Eagles. Three of those teams are going to be either in or the very least in the commander's case competing for playoff spots. So it's no gimme anymore for the Giants. And you worry with the the start that they've gotten off to and now with some of the injuries having as you know four or five injuries yesterday including Robinson is this all going to be start to cave in on them was it yesterday the beginning of the end of the season for New York football as we know it with the Giants loss to the Lions and the Jets' heartbreaking loss to the Patriots. You hope that after the fun starts that both of these teams have gotten off to, that it doesn't end in disaster. I'm just not confident that we're going to be avoiding that heartbreaking end. And that, my friends, is Keeping It Sports with M3 for Monday, November 21st, 2022. Everyone, please have a great night. Have a fun, safe, happy, enjoyable week. Enjoy Thanksgiving coming up on Thursday. Be safe with you and your family. And I'll talk to you guys again same time next week. Until then, peace. Happy Thanksgiving, everybody. We have to go. Good night, everybody. I have had enough of you. Thank you for all the fun. Thank you. Hey, shut up, will ya? I don't want to see you. I don't want to hear you. I don't want to smell you. Now leave. I'll be back.